Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. On today's episode, we have Michael Correa, Director of Government Relations at National Cannabis Industry Association, where he lobbies on tax and banking issues, organizes lobbying days, manages political action committees, produces educational materials, briefing papers, and regular newsletter updates changing the outdated, unfair, and illogical laws related to cannabis. Michael has worked on the Hill as both the Legislative and Federal Affairs Director. Thank you for joining us today, Michael. Hey, great. It's great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. I'm so delighted to have you on. And um, you've become a friend and a fellow advocate, of course. And I don't think that I know your story about how you got into cannabis. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, one, I will. And I miss you, too. I One of the uh, bad uh, effects of, of COVID is not being able to see your friends, really, oh. and being able, you know, we would do happy hours at our office and bring a lot of the advocates and industry people just to network and talk and not being able to see you is, is very frustrating. You can only imagine my life as a lobbyist whose really? goal is, is schmoozing and interacting and not being able to do that. Where if your life is just a phone call or a video, like anyone can do that. So there is something I miss and I can't wait to be able to get back to the new normal where we can interact. So uh, one, so my story uh, honestly, I was I, I worked about 13 years on the Hill. I worked at a state-based policy organization. I worked at a think tank. Uh, I worked for politicians that honestly, sometimes you go, wow, I don't really believe in everything they support, but my name's not on the ballot. And I always, I always thought that that was my existence, but I always wanted to do more. And I always wanted to be a lobbyist. I always wanted to um, touch on a lot of different things. And, you know, I have a little ADD and I love focusing on lots of different things instead of one thing. And I never wanted to be, you know, the uh, expert in Section 2 of the Clean Water Act. I wanted to be the generalist. I wanted to be the politician. And I thought um, a lobbyist would be a perfect one for me. And I saw this job advertised and I thought this has got to be the coolest job in America, a lobbyist for the cannabis industry. And this was in 2013. It was a different world back then. And um, it has been exactly that. I think I am the luckiest guy in America. I have the coolest job in America. I don't get paid. I get paid as a nonprofit, which is great. But that's a trade off I've made to be able to do the fun things that I get to do. I've been able to use my experience uh, on the Hill, working think tanks policy, and apply it to be a benefit to NCIA. And at the same time, I get to do a little press. I get to do a little traveling, a little speaking, a little lobbying. I get to do a lot of you know networking. It's a perfect fit for my mentality because I'm the ultimate generalist. I'm you know my deputy Michelle Rutter Freeberg is the person I keep around, so she knows. You know, all the trains run on time and all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. But I'm the generalist that can sort of freestyle and go from here to there. So it, it's been I've had some crappy jobs in life, but, you know, it, life comes full circle. And all the all the work I put into it got me to this point and I couldn't be happier. Well, so as a Capitol Hill veteran, um, you definitely know more about what's going on with the government truly from the inside. And as you're as being the head of the government affairs for NCIA, what can you tell us about what your organization is doing about federal regulations of cannabis? And where do you think things stand on federal legalization? 
Well, one, you know, when I first started this job seven years ago, the discussion dealt with should we be legalizing cannabis and just the merits of that and trying to increase the probability of something happening and increase the visibility of this issue. Uh, because, you know, we've been as a country, we've been lied to for 50 plus years on this issue and just trying to get past that to go to a politician who most politicians are risk averse on this issue and a lot of issues and to try to say, hey, let's legalize cannabis. And there was that giggle. There was that giggle factor. Well, now, fast forward seven years later, we you know, I have accomplished what I'm trying to do. And that is that is mainstream this issue, legitimize this issue. And now the discussion is not should we be legalizing cannabis? Yes or no. It should be how do we regulate this? How do we roll this out and how do we legalize cannabis? So that discussion has changed. Uh, over the past, you know, half a decade, you can just see that in the seriousness of this issue on Capitol Hill. And that is like, how do we want regulations to look like? What do we want legalization to look like? And if you know anything like uh, I'm, I'm a native of California, California leads the world in cannabis, you know, advocacy and reform and all that. And you see them almost spinning their wheels with their regulatory structure and all the problems that they're having in the state to not truly achieve the outcome that they want. And so I don't want that repeated at the federal level. And so, you know, NCIA, um, a year ago, we produced a, a white paper. It's called Adapting a Regulatory Framework for the Emerging Cannabis Industry. And that was released in October last year. We did a briefing on Capitol Hill in November. And my plan was to take this concept of what we think regulation should look like and turn it into legislation, turn it into a bill, move it forward, get it passed, start having that discussion, which I thought I would have spent a lot of my 2020 doing, and then COVID hit, and it was a change you know, of our perspective, the priorities on Capitol Hill. So we're still doing it, we're still going forward, but it's sort of been delayed. I hate to say 2020 is just gonna be a lost year on almost cannabis advocacy and just in general, um, but that is something where, um, it's probably going to pick up a little more steam. We're going to have some more conversations in November and December. And I could see January, February, March of really having these discussions, because like I said, it's not about, you know, should we be doing this? It's, it's, it, it's how we roll this out and what's important. And so we are, we are having those discussions. And for cannabis to be deemed essential, during this pandemic, I feel like it's kind of hard to go back on that now, right? You know, many of the states that, you know, have medical programs um, were open just alongside any pharmacy. So, you know, really thinking and hoping that that could be a little bit of a silver lining to this pandemic. No, that is one of the important things that we were first trying to get the word out that these are essential businesses, either for medicine or for other aspects that they should stay open. And you saw, I think it was I think Massachusetts was the only state the governor didn't deem it essential, but otherwise I think it was 33 other states who deemed it essential. And now, and that's sort of the paradox, like you have 33 states deeming something essential and then the federal government choosing to pretend like it doesn't exist. And when when they are um, doing their emergency funding um, bills that they're not, it's not able to apply anything cannabis related because you know, it's illegal at the federal level. And it's it's just a shame 
that the state of California can deem it legal, but then they don't have access to anything that their next door neighbor or the business right next door could have access to. So it's a very important issue where I think for the most part, the states deemed them uh, essential. They know they're essential, they're important, but it's now, I hate to say it, it's still coming back to Congress of, of showing of why this is important, why they need, they need to be standing up for these uh, cannabis industry businesses. So I always like to check in with you about safe banking and just wondering if you can tell our listeners where legislation stands right now, why it's not passed and what is the status of the MORE Act? So one on safe banking, uh, it was just over a year ago, September 25th, where it passed uh, 321 of uh, votes. I think we had 100 Republicans, extremely bipartisan. That was the highlight of my career mm -hmm. up to that point, seeing that happen. Uh, that's been sitting on the Senate for the past year now. They had a hearing on the bill. Uh, the senator, the Senate chairman of the banking committee is Michael Crapo from Idaho, which Idaho is one of the, I think, two or three states in the union that has no cannabis reform legislation in their state. So there's zero reason for him to care about this issue, but he has cared about this issue because it's a banking issue. And so there have been discussions on moving the bill. So that's been sitting there. In April or May, May sorry, maybe June of this year, the House passed their third version, I think, third or fourth version of their emergency funding bill, the HEROES Act. And in the HEROES Act, it had the provisions of the Safe Banking Act uh, in there. So that passed again, it passed the House, it's sitting over in the Senate. And so if the Senate, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell would get together and the Republicans gave their version of an emergency sp spending bill, you would put those two together and there's a chance it could be in there. I'm, I'm optimistic, I'm 50-50, you know, that it, something could pass. And then just last week, the House Democrats passed yet another emergency funding bill um, with the safe banking provision in it. So there are three pieces of legislation that the House has passed to the Senate that's sitting over there. Any one of them could get enacted. But until you have Mitch McConnell and um, Michael Crapo, the chairman, sign off on this, the Republicans are not going to go forward on this. And it's something we're trying to build a good case. There are 34 senators who are co-sponsors of this bill. Almost half the Senate is co-sponsoring this bill and it's still not being moved because honestly, a majority of the co-sponsors are Democrats and Mitch McConnell is gonna do something that helps his party. Now that gets to the Senate race in Colorado, Cory Gardner, he's running against uh, the former governor, John Hickenlooper and Cory Gardner, this is an important issue for him. Does Senator McConnell you know, give him that uh, victory and put safe banking in. Uh, we're hopeful, but, you know, I look, I'm looking at the calendar right now. There's only four weeks left till the election. <laughs> and so getting something to happen before the election or getting something to happen before the end of the year are becoming slimmer, but I'm still, they, it's not over yet. I'm still optimistic and hopeful that something could happen. That's great. That's great. And we don't, don't want to lose hope. You know, I, I want to, at least tell myself that there's a chance with everything that's happened, you know, this year that it could open a lot of people's eyes and minds to how this could make, you know, our, our economy be impacted in a much positive way. 
Um, but I want to talk with you now about how you see social justice being served for those people who still remain locked up for simple cannabis possessions, while others are out there on the outside legally consuming cannabis and making lots of money off of cannabis in this industry. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I think it was just last week. Um, and I, I join all the advocacy groups. So I'm a member of Normal. I'm a member of MPP, DPA and all that. And Normal just sent out um, uh, some stats. And I think it was 500,000 plus people are still arrested for cannabis. Now, are people going to jail or prison for that? Yeah, probably not. But guess what? You're still getting arrested. You're still getting that on your record. And maybe if you're in school, that's affecting your school. Maybe if you are on public um, uh, support, maybe that's affecting public support. Maybe that's affecting your job. And I think about this, you know, I remember during the 2016 presidential election, everyone was joking about Jeb Bush for smoking in high school and like it was nothing. And here he is, you know, a, a, a rich white kid going to a private school. It means nothing. But think about how many tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of young uh, people of color who did the same exact thing, who now couldn't go to college That's or right. who now couldn't get a job or who now could not, who now had that mark on their system um, or on, on their, you know, on their record mm -hmm. to where now they couldn't be part of society or it affected them. And now, now are they spending their lives in jail? No, but at the same time, they are maybe um, kept from getting, having any upward economic mobility or getting a job. And so you see that aspect and that still hasn't changed. And let alone the fact that police use cannabis as a pretext to um, you know, pulling you over, arresting you, putting you in a chokehold, you know, putting their knee on your back, all because they smell something. Or it, it, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous that the fact that you can have in your possession something that 30 states have deemed okay, that could, could be a death sentence for you because that allowed the police officer to pull you over, put a knee on your back or something. And so the social justice aspect is very important just for that. And in the second, the war on drugs has uh, is really hurt people of color over these past 50 years. And one of the side effects is now maybe you have a felony on your record and maybe you can't get into the cannabis business or you can't get access to loans and you can't be the owner operators. And so it's like a double whammy of you got hurt by the um, war on drugs, and now you're not able to experience legalization, and that is horrible. So we de we definitely need to do something to where the people who are wrong have an opportunity to correct that. And at the same time, the last thing we want, the last thing I want, or anyone in cannabis advocacy, is you know the rich white guy that was an opponent for years who now comes in because he's connected now has a. a um, a, a, an application or a permit or gets in is now making bank on something like this. And so it is something that we need to address just as advocates, just as citizens, and just because it's the right thing to do. Um, and we need to make sure that when Congress is doing legalization, that 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 aspect is not forgotten. And they think about this because the last thing I want is uh, we wake up a day after legalization happens and we go, what did we do? This is not what we want. And we need to make sure that day doesn't happen. We wanna make sure when legalization happens, we are all cheering and it's all, it's the right thing to do and it's a good thing to do and we're all benefiting. So 
the social justice aspect touches on that on so many different aspects because cannabis has just been just like the means for them to ruin your life. And that's, right. it's sad. Right. And then you, you know, you have this nonviolent cannabis conviction and you now have no ability to even get into the industry. I mean, I'm in Pennsylvania and I know that for a fact, you know, that people that I know that, you know, really should have a place at the table have not been able to. So in your opinion, what do you feel needs to happen to get things straight once and for all for these folks caught in our legal system in this way? Well, one, we need to make sure um, the advocates, you know, I, I worked on Capitol Hill and um, it's the path of least resistance. And so if you're if your voice is not if you don't raise your voice, it's going to get forgotten. And so if if no one is coming up saying we need to be doing this on social justice aspects, there a politician is just going to be he's going to be talking, hey, I'm good on cannabis reform. I want to sign this piece of legislation that maybe doesn't address it. They don't know that they're doing something wrong or they're not going far enough. They think they're doing great. And so they sign off on a bill. A bill passes in state legislatures or eventually in Congress and that the uh, intended outcome is not what they wanted. And so one, uh, people who care about this, they just need to be heard because when you choose to not participate in our democracy, your voice doesn't get heard. And then no one cares about you and it, the void is filled with someone else. And if that someone else is a large MSO, well then that opinion is going to get heard more so because it's forgotten about. And I remember when I was in Northern California in Humboldt a couple years ago, a lot of the people in Humboldt said, well, you know, we don't care about legalization. We're not going to be part of it. And they stepped aside and then legalization in Sacramento happened. And then they go, oh shit, what's happened? We're not part of this. And then they sort of came to the game a little late. You need to be in the game at the very beginning, um, joining these uh, groups, normal DPA, MPP, all these groups that are focusing not on that so your voice is heard and in letting letting your your politicians your local politicians know why it's important so when they develop their uh cannabis reform it's up there and let's be honest with you out of the 535 members of the house and senate i can count maybe five that are totally totally informed on cannabis and they know everything about it most other people are like ah eh, it isn't a priority where do i sign what do i do they don't know because they're not cannabis like advocates, they're not cannabis true champions because they don't know it. You know, they were, I hate to say it, many of them are probably like hall monitors in high school or something like that <laughs> to where, you know, or they were narcs or something and they don't get the need for total cannabis reform and what it means. And if someone throws a bill in front of them and say, hey, sign this bill, it's for cannabis. Yeah, great, I'm gonna do it. So the, their voice, people who care about this need to make sure their voice isn't forgotten. And NCIA cares about this. Um, we've done a lot on the diversity, go to our website, all the social activism, all the things we need to be doing. We haven't forgot about it as an industry because, you know, um, like I said, you don't want to wake up a day after legalization and say, I don't want to participate in the legal market. We want the illicit market to slowly fade away and it be filled up with a tax and regulated market. We don't want a regulated market and then an unregulated market where it's sitting there and and, you know, you just go, you know what, I'm still going to go to my drug dealer and I'm going to get I'm going to get my product because it's a little cheaper. No, you don't want that. You want that to fade away. And there has to be buy in from people to make it work.
That's right. I see on your website that you um, have a social equity scholarship program and have been doing these catalyst conversation webinar series. And I think that, uh, you know, that's a really excellent way to continue to have these conversations be, you know, in the forefront, but also to give that scholarship. Um, I think that that's a, a really excellent way that, that NCIA is, is helping um, take action. Yeah, thank you. And we're definitely having that discussion out there, making that discussion public so people know um, what we're doing on this issue. Um, I, I just, as a side note, and I don't know that everyone is always aware of this. I mean, it is the lobbyists are the ones who write the legislation and the one who the ones who educate. Right. Um, and I have been told by so many people that uh we do have to do this the right way or we invite an illicit market and, uh, you know, all the other things that we're not interested in anymore. Um, I wanted to ask you, there's a lot of controversy around finding a fair way to test for cannabis impairment. So I just wanted to see what NCIA's stance is around that. And if you've seen something out in the marketplace that's, you know, up and coming and, uh, sorry, um, piling on on this question. Will it ultimately be in the Fed's hands to, you know, have a rule about this, or will it remain with the states? So, one, a couple points, and I'll go through them. Uh, NCIA is not really, you know, we're not focused on that because we're doing lobbying and advocacy, but it is something that's very important because I know, you know, when I look at this as just a, a generalist, a policy person. Um, we're not going to have legalization uh, across the board in America until middle America, i.e. soccer moms and everyone are comfortable with this. They don't no one wants a bunch of stone drivers going around crashing. So testing is going to be very important. Testing for impairment. Now, if you if you are, um, you know, you consume cannabis on a Friday night and drive your car on Monday and crash and they test and they go, well, they had THC in your system. Well, they weren't they weren't uh, inebriated, but they had it in their system. So one, uh, you need to get a good a good accurate test, and then you also need to determine what quote unquote impairment is, because you know there are a lot of people who can consume cannabis and have higher levels, whether they're cancer patients or what have you, or they just have a higher threshold. You know, um, we have determined. That 0 0.08 is an inebriation where you shouldn't be driving. I trust me. I know a lot of people that can drive fine above it. And you can also have a dry, reckless, or a DUI at 0 0.04. And so it just depends on the circumstances of what inebriation is. And we need to make sure the, uh, the science is there uh, because I know that middle America will be more embracing of this issue if they know that there is good testing on something like that. And you mentioned the feds. Honestly, you know, there when we talk about our regulatory paper, a lot of, you know, big picture regulate this like alcohol. A lot of it is where um, the federal government is out of the way and it's up to the individual states to do something. So with, with um, you know, I'm old enough to remember uh, going back in the day where there were different uh, levels of what DUI was, and they tried to standardize across the board for states to follow some type of guidelines or rule where there's uniformity on this issue. 
and determine, say, what a 0.08, whatever that is, inebriation in cannabis is, and then do an education campaign. You know, um, we we got smoking levels down, uh, not because we made it illegal, it was because we educated the public. We got, uh, you know, DUIs down, not because we made alcohol illegal, but because we educated the public. And, you know, uh, checking ID now, when I go to the grocery store to buy alcohol, you need to scan your ID. I don't know if that's other states or just D.C., but there are a lot of things you can be doing on the testing at the state level. Um, to make sure, like maybe there's minimal federal guidelines, um, what the state should be following. But I do, I don't, I'm not the biggest, I get a little twitchy when it comes to federal uh, power because um, the federal government has a tendency to do things wrong. And I would rather have the states be the laboratories of democracy and one of them gets it right and then they start following what sort of works at the state level and then make changes over time as we go, but I think it's I think it's going to be very important. NCI would watch that. I've I've seen a couple people have shown me examples of rapid testing um, on this, but until you determine what inebriation is or what a level, you're just going to be uh, arguing over whether a person is inebriated or shouldn't drive or not. I mean, we know that the most dangerous drivers out there are the elderly. <laughs> Are you gonna are you gonna make it illegal for everyone over eighty to be driving because they have more accidents than inebriated people? So it is something you just have to look at it. I want people to look at this as a policy issue that we solve from a policy standpoint versus you know this oh cannabis we don't want all these cannabis freaks driving around. No, it's like you, you have the same issue with alcohol. You have the same issue with drugs. It just comes down to you know um, under what conditions can you be driving a car, and I think it's really important. And you made a good point, though, talking about middle America and the soccer moms, because I'll tell you, to, in many ways, beyond the policy, it's ending the stigma, right? Because the policy won't change if people aren't, you know, changing their minds about it. And so, you know, I challenge a lot of the, you know, moms out there that might be listening that, you know, may have a couple glasses of wine and have no problem, you know, getting behind the wheel to take their kids to the grocery store, that, you know, our stigmas are completely different around this plant, yet the way that one can consume it and still safely drive is very different. And so I think that so much of this is really, and hopefully what we plan to do with our podcast is bring folks like you on, Michael, that have all this experience so that we can hopefully, you know, let others know that it really is up to them to learn more about the goodness behind this plan so they can understand why we're fighting for these policies to be changed. Yeah. And I I couldn't agree more. And my philosophy has always been my audience is middle America. My audience isn't someone who reads High Times magazine because we are. Right. What do we need <laughs> That's to right. win them over? And so I'm always trying to reach a bigger audience. And I've seen polling. There's been polling out there where a, a lot of soccer moms are OK with this. Maybe they consumed mm-hmm. it. Maybe they not. They just don't know how to explain this to their kids. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand that, you know, there's a difference of what you're okay with legalization and are you okay with legalization as your deadbeat uncle or brother is living in your basement? There's different views on this and we need to be, we need to understand the public perception of this on how we lobby, how we sell this, how we market, because you just, maybe some people are for legalization, but not totally across the board. Like I want kids having it or what have you. And so it is very important that we need to be, you know, know your audience. I definitely know my audience when I talk to people um, to get that point across because 
what I what I say going into a Republican office will be different than what I say going into a Democratic office of the things that they care about in their messaging. And the same thing is true. Now, I'm going to get up on my soapbox for a minute. And it's one thing I think is missing. And that is cannabis. Cannabis reform advocacy needs to be and I'm a I'm a political guy campaigns, blah, blah, blah. We need to turn this into a campaign and it needs to be like three prong. And part of it has to be a public awareness education campaign, getting the public um, around this. So that's education. That's where you guys come in, just talking about the issue. Then there needs to be the grassroots advocacy of people calling in. And then there needs to be the me, me knocking on a door saying, Senator, support this. And so, you know, if I knock on a senator's door and he says, thanks, that's great to hear. I appreciate it. If he's not hearing from his state, he doesn't care about it. And so it is It is one of those things, and I have to catch myself, I said he, I, it's he, she, and I, I'm so bad, but on something like that where they don't care about this issue, they need to hear from their constituents. And I hate to say it, but I think a lot of people in cannabis um, have watched you know, a house of cards too much. And they think that, oh, let's just get every high priced lobby firm in town and then we'll legalize cannabis. What has it gotten? It's gotten nothing. And so you need to be smart with your money. And that's why I think if I were king for a day and could do it, I would, that's where I'd be spending on my money, public education campaigns, grassroots, and then, and then making sure we were doing the job in DC. DC's covered. We're doing great in DC, but the grassroots states part is missing and I think that's a very important part because we want middle America and soccer moms and elderly coming around to this issue because then they're going to be comfortable having the cannabis dispensary on the street corner. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that's me on my soapbox. <laughs> no, we love it. No, we really love it. And how much of, of what happens on Election Day on November 3rd? do you feel will have an effect on, on NCI's plans for 2021 and in cannabis reform in general? So one, you know, um, I, I, I'm slightly worried about my democracy in this country. I hope that there is a, um, a result soon after that we have some clarity. I don't want rioting on the streets. I don't want, I don't want gun to militias who aren't comfortable with whatever election result we have. So it depends, you know, um, uh, Donald Trump said a lot of not bad things during the campaign in 2016, uh, where he would respect states, blah, blah, blah. And then he named Jeff Sessions as his attorney general, possibly the worst person in America to be attorney general. Um, then he replaced him by William Barr. And William Barr has said some publicly good things. But behind the scenes, DOJ has very much been watching cannabis mergers and have been watching them behind the scenes and have not been doing as much as they should or could be doing, um, they are trying to muck up cannabis reform. So who you elect is very important. Now, everyone who who has, who has points out Joe Biden's flaws, and um, there are a lot of flaws when it comes to cannabis reform, whether he uh, believes in this personally or not, I guarantee you a Joe Biden Department of Justice will be a lot friendlier than a Donald Trump Department of Justice and Department of Treasury and, you know, Department of whatever you want to call it, the IRS, to where they're going to be more open to finding a solution. So the Department of Treasury and the regulators, FinCEN, could rewrite the banking 
um, rules and give better guidance of how we do it. They chose not to because they're bureaucrats and it's something they haven't done. So there are a lot of things, there are a lot of things administrative bureaucrats can do behind the scenes. Um, I try not to make this a political issue, but it's becoming a political issue where Democrats across the board are more supportive of this issue than Republicans have been. Um, before it was, you know, maybe a quarter of Republicans, whereas maybe it was 90% of Democrats who were supportive. That's great. That's great uh, if the Democrats are in control of Congress and, and the presidency. So um, it's not so great for cannabis reform because for the first five years on my jo at my job, the Republicans held Congress and they never allowed a vote. They never did. They never moved a bill. They never did anything when they there was overwhelming majority support for it. They just knew it was more of a Democratic bill and they weren't going to do it. So, you know, what does the election result have? It depends. You know, do you have a Joe Biden administration with a Senate, you know, majority Chuck Schumer as ahead? Um, because there is good support in the Senate, but until Mitch McConnell wants to make this an issue and starts freeing up some of these bills, we're never going to have a vote on the Senate floor to determine what people's support is. So um, it's very important. Um, I know a lot of people do not like Joe Biden for a lot of reasons, but I just look at it and, and, and Donald Trump hasn't done anything. You know, it's not like he shut down um, cannabis. He had every opportunity to, um, but he hasn't done as much as he could have, you know, Campaigning for president is one thing, but now when you're president, you have the levers of power. You can do something. And so his DOJ, I think, could have done a lot more to clarify things, and he hasn't gone far enough. So it is a matter of running on your record. And Biden's Biden's vice presidential pick, uh, Kamala Harris, is the co-sponsor of the MORE Act. And so she has already evolved uh, on this issue. And... Um, things would be a lot different. So I'm a realist, you know, it's not what I want. It's what Congress is willing to give me. And um, I would I would look so, you know, I, I just got off the phone with a reporter an hour ago and he asked me this exact question. And it, it's I would see what happens on Election Day and then in November, December, start determining who are committee chairs, um, who who is in power, who are the people we need to be pushing, what states have now legalized. So there's going to be ballot initiatives, you know, in Arizona, Montana, one of the Dakotas, Mississippi is going to have a medical. And then there's talk of New Jersey trying to legalize. Yep. There's talk of Vermont trying to legalize. So what happens What happens between November and January if two or three or four states legalize? And what happens if um, state legislatures come in in January and now by June we have five more legalized states? Because we know, you know, from what I've been hearing, um, if New Jersey goes, New York will go soon after because they don't want to lose that market. And you'll see, I, I, I think most of the Northeast will be legal because no one, they're so close to each other. No one wants their consumers going to the next door neighbor to consume when they're really close to having it. So I could see most of the Northeast working. And even um, Andrew Cuomo has said basically that where he wants to work on cannabis reform from a regional standpoint. Um, and so, like, those those changes change the dynamic of what I'm dealing with in D.C. because my job is a lot easier when I can go to a member, a powerful chairman, who now his state is legal and it's a billion-dollar industry in their state. It changes the dynamic. 
Absolutely. And and for all of our listeners out there, go out and vote. Let your voice be heard. Make sure that you not only vote in the federal elections, but you have to vote for your local representatives because I'm from Pennsylvania, Michael. So I could tell you, you know, our our governor and our, our lieutenant governor have done a listening tour, went to all of our counties, spoke to everyone to get their collective voice on whether or not they felt the Pennsylvania should be uh, an adult use legal state. And there was an overwhelmingly amount of support. But we don't have the ability like New Jersey had to put it on a ballot. That's not the way that our state runs. And New Jersey ha- actually does have television campaigns that they're running right now to expose the issue and to let people know how their money's being wasted while people are sitting in jail for nonviolent crimes. So I really feel, and this is like a call to all of you, make sure you go out there and vote um, and let your voice be heard if this is an issue that matters most to you. And I want to ask you how our listeners um, and concerned patients, what they can do to help you with the good work that NCIA is doing in the industry? Um, well, one, and thank you for that. Uh, one, be informed. And you can go, you know, Normal does a great voter guide. We're trying to, NCIA is trying to pick out um, congressional, like, races to watch that are going to be important. I try to be strategic with my PAC donations. Our, our um, uh, When we give uh, financial um checks to certain uh, members. I try to be strategic on how we do that uh, because I don't want to make this a political issue. I just don't want to give to Democrats, but I want to give to people to get a good result. Um, So one, for the public, just getting educated on the issue, look at some of these voter guys, see where they are on cannabis, make sure it jives with your other philosophies, um, and then definitely vote. And then, like I said, you know, because there's a missing component of grassroots, it's being active and wanting to call. And one of the sad things about COVID happening this year, one of the many, um, uh, was we weren't able to do our lobby days. So our members, we would do our lobby days in the springtime, usually May. We would have our member businesses come in. We would do a fundraiser. We would do lobbying on the Hill. We would do like 500 meetings on the Hill. It was great. And it would be, we'd be in a new cycle. It was wonderful. But we couldn't do that. And so my hope is we can get back to that where we can do some lobbying. Uh, most lobbying now is sort of online where it's a Zoom call or what have you. But you can still do something and just being educated and informed and voting. Um, cannabis activists tend to want the perfect candidate. And, you know, sometimes it always isn't the perfect candidate. Uh, sometimes people aren't totally evolved on this issue and um, we're going to need Republicans to get this over the finish line. For any for anything to be successful in this town, you need it to be bipartisan and you need broad behind you. And that's what I've been trying to build. Um, and I, I tell people my job is to turn a vocal, uh, vocal no into a silent no, turn a no into a maybe, turn a maybe into a yes, and turn a yes into a champion. And it, like, I don't give up on anyone. And eventually, if someone's so bad, maybe they get voted out of the office. That's up for their voters to decide. But that's the way I've always tried to be because I knew where I was on cannabis reform. And there is a little bit of evolution that's needed um, for each and every one. And let's be realistic about it. And that's the way I try to approach it. I just I want I want I want the public to understand how important this is. Make sure it's on your important list and make sure you're doing everything you can be. Or else this just gets forgotten. And I I joke, I like to joke and say, 
Uh, this is 101st of a congressman's top 100 list of things to do. You know, this is not this is not global warming. This is not, you know, stopping ISIS. This is not building new freeways or abortion or what have you or guns. It's low down on that list and making sure, like, let's get it up to 99 and then 98. Let's get it up a little higher on their list so they want to do something. That's up to the public. And it takes time. This issue is fairly new. But you did say you've been doing this for like seven years. So it's been taking a long time too. you know, to many people, it might be new because they're just now seeing it in the news so much. And it's something that's happening. But I mean, the work that you've been doing and the lobbying that's been happening, there's been a lot of hard work that's gone into this for many years. And so we just really thank you. Yeah, just thank you for your efforts and your work. Thank you. Well, when I took this job, I looked at it as being a eight to 10 year process. And I'm in year seven going into year eight. So things I knew it would be a long haul. I didn't think this would be one year. Um, and I remember you go back in a time machine. I remember 1993. Don't ask, don't tell. It took 25 years for the Supreme Court to sort of make a decision on this. Things happen. They don't happen overnight. And let's be honest. This is like cannabis legalization. This is historic. And this is not just going to happen overnight. You know, um, alcohol prohibition didn't start overnight and didn't end overnight. And this is going to be the same thing. So. Um, you know, willing as as long as we have membership and I'm able to pay the bills, I love my job. I'm still I still have the coolest job. I still love it. Um, COVID has sort of, you know, hit us upside the head and slowed things down. Um, but I still want to go forward and I still want to see this through. Um, I look at this as the book is being written right now and I want it. This is not it's not supposed to end with me not there or us not finishing. And that's why I don't want to go on and do something else. I want to see this through the end and then see where it goes from there. So I'm, I'm fortunate because I get to meet people like you and I get to go do fun stuff and it makes my job so much more rewarding than what I was doing on the Hill or before. And I thank you too, for the opportunity just to get out and get the message out and wish you guys the best of luck. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. And thank you, Marco Correa from the National Cannabis Industry Association for joining us today. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We hope that you'll subscribe to The Vine, a plant media project podcast on your favorite podcast platform now to never miss an episode. And learn more about PMP by visiting plantmediaproject.com.